right. So. Awesome. Okay, welcome everybody. We are live. I'm super pumped here today. I've got a very special guest, somebody who uh, has had a, a pretty significant influence in my in my healing journey. Well, one of our one of our first interactions, you know, you actually, you know, you and Nima actually cracked me open and you know, see me kind of bore my eyes out and unpack something that had been bothering me for since the age of three yeah like, you know 38 to 35 year weight uh, inside and so you know for me to be able to you know kind of return this favor and see your growth uh, dr russ to have you on the show is just like you know i'm kind of like in between this not pedestalization of yeah. you know having you up here but just so grateful man just so grateful to have you here and um i just want to welcome everybody to the functionally addicted podcast show i'm your host fabian pateau and uh we've got Dr. Russ Kennedy in the house. And so some of you will know, uh, you know, of his background, but I'll, I'll share for those that don't, you know, Dr. Russ is known in the, uh, in this world as the anxiety MD and uh, he's a visionary physician as, as well. So uh, specializing in the background of neuroscience, developmental psychology, mind, body, medicine, psychedelics uh, has an amazing story that is, you know, from way I see it is not a, is not a, a quack, that has just gone through university and you know sits there and prescribes pills. Um, he's actually somebody that's going to, going to share his story, but he's actually been through his own hero's journey, uh, which has probably led him to why he's in this space right now. But you know, from you know lifelong battle of you know chronic crippling worry, anxiety to you know going down all these different journeys that you know I know you're going to share with the audience today. But you know, sure. Written a bestseller book, Anxiety RX, has been featured on you know huge podcast shows, uh, and uh, you know the book is amazing. I already know I haven't read all of it yet. I'm half kind of a quarter of the way through, but I, I know your story because we've worked together. Um, you know you got your uh, you got your program as well, the MBRX uh, step by step yep. mind body program, and I'm sure we'll unpack that. But all in all, uh, you know Russ, you just teach people how to heal. From anxiety and, and really how to you know not just not just cope with it to actually heal from it so thank yeah. you for being on the show my man thanks yeah i appreciate that good eye mate <laughs> <laughs> that's it's one continent i haven't been to right like i there's two continents i haven't been to australia and antarctica and i gotta get to australia at some point you know but it's it's a long journey from where i am in the world in victoria british columbia canada so so I'll I'll you know I'll build up my I'll build up my strength and get yeah. on that long plane flight. But I have lots of friends down there. I have lots of friends actually down in Australia. Yeah. So on both coasts. So that's another there's another flight there. But uh, yeah, but it's 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 great talking with you, Fabian. It's really nice to just actually connect after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been like five years, like four or five years for when we kind of you know from my side the Pandora's yep. box was kind of cracked open and you know what it's inter it's interesting because you're in victoria like and so am i right but we're yeah <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna run a retreat here, man I'm, I'm running some retreats and i think having you down here at some point and 
helping sure. facilitate that would be amazing but um you know today's obviously conversation is around anxiety and i know for me you know i've suffered and i didn't really realize it but i suffered from social anxiety for forever and what's interesting if you look at my background i was kind of always the outgoing person you know i got into real estate i was constantly meeting strangers and then i got into consulting so everything i've done all careers that are kind of counterintuitive to for somebody who's got social anxiety and after kind of going through this work, one thing that I'd realized was that it was like, I was like kind of almost putting myself in situations to try to overcome it. Yeah. It's weird. So I, I want to unpack that later. Sure. And you know, maybe turn it into a bit of a, a session for me, for me to get going. No, I'm the but- same way, baby. I'm the same way, you know? So it, it, I can totally relate to that. It's one of the reasons why I think I got into stand-up comedy as well was because, you know, as a kid, I, I went through, you know, I wasn't bullied right through school, but there was there was years where I, I had a real issue with bullying and that kind of thing. So there's part of me that's kind of afraid of people. And I think mm-hmm. there is this sort of, we call it counterphobic, where you go directly at what scares you. And and I think that's very, it's a, it's a successful program overall, but you're kind of pushing yourself into it academically rather than kind of from a very feeling based standpoint. So yeah. it does work, you know, and it does, and it drags people along that line. Well, I did this so I can do this, but it really doesn't allow you to kind of incrementally touch back with yourself along the way. Yeah. I, I, I get that because when I reflect on some of the c- circumstances, I found myself then binge drinking a lot or, yeah. you know, just kind of writing myself off. So I'd get into those situations, but then kind of like there wasn't a release and I would find it with, substances and that was that was kind of my journey share share with us russ like how does how does one get to like how do you get to where you are right now you know we've got a saying in our space like the mess becomes the message right yeah share with the audience like how what what was the mess for you yeah sure well i grew up with a dad who had bipolar and schizophrenia so and and he was never abusive or violent and he was very intelligent very playful very fun, very caring, very loving. But then I would lose him to psychosis or mania. He'd be up for like three or four days at a time uh, or depression, like deep, dark depression where we wouldn't leave his bed for a week. So as a child, you know, and I was the oldest boy in the family too. So as a child, uh, what I what I would get from him is this tremendous amounts of love. And then all of a sudden that love would just disappear. Not because on purpose, but it was just that was his illness, right? Mm. So I grew up in this sort of chaotic environment. Um, and you did tell it too, like, you know, alcohol does the same sort of thing. Mm. Like people are one way and then they're a complete other way. And it's very difficult mm. for a child to kind of come to terms with that. So mm. I think that that's, that's where my, the root of my anxiety kind of came from was this having this great dad and then have him just gone. And I've often thought, you know, it, it might have been better just to have your basic kind of run of the mill dad who wasn't really all that, you know, it, you know, just there as a, as a support network and that kind of stuff, but not as effusive as he was, because mm-hmm. when I lose him, it was, you know, it's just like, it was like being yeah. at Disneyland and then all of a sudden being in the desert. It was just, yeah, the, wow. so what I did for me, what happened was I just withdrew from love in general because I thought, well, you know, in my little unconscious child mind, I thought, well, this isn't safe. Love isn't safe. So, and there is only love and fear. So if you block love, all you're going to do is fill up with fear over time, which is exactly what I did. Yeah. Wow. 
that's uh yeah that's that's i mean that's that's heavy for some people right but you know i see some similarities in that in that story and so like so what i'm hearing as well is like it's it's really about the unease the the un, the, the, the lack of predictability i mean it yeah. sounds like there's eventually some predictability in that that you know the roller coaster is going to go up and then it's going to come down but it's just a question of kind of like when isn't it yeah and because you know the human brain is wired for fear it's wired for survival it's going to pay way more attention to the to the chaotic uncertain parts than it is to the parts that are fairly quiet and fun you know it's a, it's an unfortunate mm -hmm. part of our human wiring that we pay way more attention to the fearful bits than we do the fun bits i mean and that's you know it was basically to keep us alive but we're you know we're not faced with life threatening issues so much more in our mm -hmm. society so but we still mm -hmm. have this stone age brain in a digital world and it still acts and it still runs our lives if we don't become aware of it mm -hmm. so then so, so explain to us then what like what what did the journey look like for you so this is what was occurring you know through your formative years what did your like teen years in yeah. your 20s what how did you how did you work through this like well you know i think a lot of the, a lot of the energy in my family went to my father you know it's like how is he doing this week is he is he going is he going manic is he going depressive is he you know losing touch with reality so a lot of the energy of the family went into him so i think the rest of us really didn't feel like we were seen and heard so mm. part of me and this kind of tracks back to what we were saying earlier went into this place where i'm going to be seen and heard i'm going to become a doctor i'm going to be stand-up comic i'm going to do all these sort of things to kind of be seen and heard but at the same token by the same token i wasn't really prepared for it in a really organic healthy way so nice. what happened was that yeah i did become a doctor and i burned out of that i went into stand-up and i love stand-up but it was it's a very it's a very difficult uh, you know it's so judgmental it's the travel is horrible um you know you only live really for the hour a night that you're on stage and it's just it just became this sort of peripatetic kind of here and there and everywhere, which was the chaos that was my childhood, actually. You know, Freud, mm -hmm. Freud has this great uh, saying about the repetition compulsion, like what mm -hmm. was familiar to us in childhood, we will unconsciously replicate in adulthood. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's a very strong draw, you know, and unless you're aware like this is my pattern, you're probably going to go down that pattern 10, 20, 30 times before you change it. So yeah. for me, you know, growing up into teens and 20s, it was like, okay, I was a bartender, had a great time, worked at a nightclub, you know, lots of money, lots of parties. Uh, but around 22, thought, you know, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to school and uh, my, my initial university grades were dismal. But then over the course of the last you know two or three years of university, I did really, really well. Then I got into med school. I, I went through medical school. I started practicing. And then I kind of burned out of that because I saw the limitation of, of, of medicine, you know, which mm. is really like medicine's a great name for it because they basically what all they do is give you medications. And I'm not mm. against medical doctors. I think medical doctors are amazing. They have a, a tremendous role in society, but we are trained as medical doctors to give medications that is our mm. that is our slap shot that is our, our fundamental goal that's that's our main weapon so yeah. you know as i saw that this giving people antidepressants was just masking their symptoms that 
started to become like a crisis of conscience for me. Mm. It's like, I don't really feel comfortable just masking these symptoms for people because I can see people healing from this. And I can, mm. and you know, there's some people that have such profound uh, trauma and drama in their childhoods. They may never be able to get off psych meds and that's fine. You know, I'm glad that we have them, but they're so overprescribed. And I think there is a significant amount of the population that, that doesn't have to use psych meds. And again, I'm mm. not being, you know, like don't do this kind of thing. But I think because medical doctors have no real training in trauma, they don't really understand it. And they only have seven to 10 minutes per patient. You can't yeah, actually get yeah. into somebody's trauma in seven, seven or 10 minutes, right? Yeah. So, but I think uh, medical doctors could be a lot more open about, you know, internal family systems therapy, somatic mm -hmm. therapy, you mm -hmm. know, different types of therapy that aren't CBT because CBT, you know, it affects the cognitive part of the brain, the upper part of the brain, the thinking part. But it doesn't really affect the lower part of the brain, the, the subcortical structures, the unconscious structures, pons, medulla, amygdala, hippocampus. None of those subcortical structures, those deep structures, understand language. So why are we yeah. losing language to try and change these old programs? Because it yeah. won't work. It appears yeah. to work in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long term. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason, a, a lot of the reason why I burned yeah. out of medicine was I just felt, and I think that's why a lot of doctors are burning out, is they just... After a while, just giving somebody a prescription to fix their symptoms just feels very hollow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There seems there seems to be an epidemic in in that space, and I, I feel as though that there is a, a little bit more of some conscious awakening happening in this space. I'm I'm sensing that. I, I don't know about where you are, but slowly where I am, it seems like you know more more people are maybe not necessarily beginning to distrust you know the doctors, but there's oh no they are oh they are yeah. oh for sure yeah. they are but yeah I but i like agree with you people feel that you know it's yeah um, i agree with you i think people are starting to come to a different way of looking at their health other than just their medical doctor yeah i absolutely so, agree with that so russ help for those that are kind of right now listening and they like they, they experience some forms of anxiety whether it's around you know, an event coming up, um, you know, a family function that they have to attend, um, you know, with their partner, whatever it may be, what's actually happening to us when we're experiencing anxiety? Like what's going on? Yeah. I mean, usually it's a throwback to an earlier time in your life, right? Like you'll blame, you'll blame your partner or your kids or your parents or whatever. Well, your parents are maybe, were maybe there at the time, but usually there's something in your, your, formative years that wasn't quite resolved or that was traumatic that get that you get reminded of and then when you get reminded of that there's this place in our brain called the insula the insular cortex is kind of the part of the brain that mediates what they call top down and bottom up so top down meaning my thoughts go into my body and my body goes into my thoughts mm. this place this insula is the kind of the way station between the, the thoughts and the body, between the mind and the body. And I think that this place in, called the insula is also mediates a lot of our feeling in our body as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my theory is that when you get stressed about an upcoming event or, you know, the dentist or, you know, your parents divorce or whatever, you go back to the same feeling in your body mod modulated by the insula and the amygdala and all these sort of structures work mm -hmm. together 
And you feel the exact same way in your body now that you did back then when you were 5, 8, 10, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And then when we feel the same way, our brain tends to create the same thoughts that we had back then as well. So your thinking reverts to that of a 5, 10, 15-year-old, which isn't usually that great most of the time. So we get caught in this snowball, this loop of my body feels this way. I'm not aware of it. Like I'm not aware that this is exactly how I felt when I was a teenager. But if I look back on it, yeah, it's very similar. So, Mm. And then our thoughts are completely consistent with how our body feels. If our body feels alarmed, we're going to make worries. We're going to make anxious thoughts. And then they're just going to cinch into each other. They're just going to become this Mm. self-fulfilling prophecy where the, Mm. the anxious thought creates more alarm in the body. And the more alarm in the body creates the anxious thought. Yeah, And you just get caught in this loop. And that's what I say to people is like anxiety isn't just one thing. It's just not something. It's just not in your mind. It's in your mind and your body and they're locked together like this. So how you heal is you pull them apart. So you feel the alarm in your body. You separate that feeling of alarm in your body from the thoughts of your mind, which is hard because since you were a child, you've probably been linking the two together unconsciously for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So when we pull them apart, we have a chance to divide and conquer. And we have a Mm -hmm. chance to actually see each of these components independently, the alarm in the body and the thoughts of the mind. And when we separate them from each other, because they energize each other, we can start to heal from it. Wow. I, that's, I want to, I want us to unpack that. I don't want to do it yet though, because I want to go back to some scenarios of like you help us paint a picture. I'm seven years old. Like what are what is the common things that are occurring at that point? Because you mentioned that usually an ang- you know, anxiety in the moment is usually a reflection of something in the past. Usually. Yeah. Usually. And so what are what are some of these key scenarios that you know young children may find themselves in that kind of causes this? you know, this experience. So I know that you mentioned like things like divorce, but so what is it about the divorce that is actually causing anxiety? Yeah, it's a sense of separation in that child. Mm. So anything that separates you from your your caregivers will yeah. cause anxiety. Yeah, and right. and if that if that is repaired, you know, so yeah. if mom has to go out for a doctor's appointment in the afternoon and she leaves you with brother or sister or dad or whatever, and mom is gone for four hours instead of an hour and a half, the child will start feeling some kind of anxiety there. It'll start mm-hmm. you know, revving up their sympathetic nervous system and that kind of thing too. And if mom comes home and you know cuddles and squeezes and coos and hugs and kisses and all, that can be repaired. You know? And yes. in fact, if that's the case, often the child's nervous system becomes stronger with that and mm-hmm. more resilient. Mm-hmm. Now, the same scenario... Um, mom doesn't come home for four or five hours. Mom's preoccupied with herself. Child comes up like, Hey, I missed you. I missed you. I missed you. Mom's preoccupied with the diagnosis that her doctor just given her or whatever. She can't Mm. connect with that child. So that child goes into this very lonely kind of dark space. Like I'm hurting. And the person I look to, to actually help me with the pain isn't available to me. Mm, that's on yeah. a very small scale. Now, if you look at, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism or mental illness or f- chronic physical illness, that yeah. happens on a large scale over a long period of time. It's going to yeah. change that child's nervous system to, yeah. to, to go into defense rather than being in this sort of thriving state of, of connection mm-hmm. and comfort with that repair. If that repair doesn't happen, there's that open loop and that open loop creates a tremendous amount of alarm in yeah. that child's system. 
And then the alarm, you know, children blame themselves for the problem. It clearly can't be the parents because the parents are looking after me. So I have to blame myself. And that's where the inner critic starts. So the whole thing just starts to kind of open up and unravel. And ultimately, you know, I say that anxiety fundamentally is a mind body disconnect. And it's mm -hmm. also an adult self child self disconnect as well. So to mm -hmm. heal from that, you have to connect your mind and your body back together. And this is why exercise and yoga and all that kind of stuff helps. But you also yeah. have to connect the adult in you to the child in you. And yeah. the adult doesn't want to go back to the child because the child holds all their pain. And the yeah. child doesn't trust the adult because the adult has left them alone for so yeah. long that the, the divide just keeps getting greater and greater and greater, which creates more alarm, which creates more anxiety in the mind. And it just, it just forms this self-replicating loop. Yeah, yeah, wow. It's it's interesting because um, I, I want to I want to unpack that as well. The repair sides of things that you spoke to, but you know, Gabor as an example, Gabor yep. Mate talks about um, children that go to childcare or daycare, like a child that spends more than I think his figures were. You, you may know this better than what I, but I think he said around twenty five hours or more if a child is separated. Yep. from their primary caregivers increases the likelihood of addiction like yep. by 70 percent and so <clears throat> you know i've got three sons they do a little bit of childcare now and you know they're, they're all under the age of six but i see them when we have to drop them off they're sometimes clinging to the leg and sure. obviously given my background and the work that you and i do now sure. i'm like oh and i'm left with this dilemma of oh, i know what's actually happening to your nervous system right yeah now. look so it's like how much of you know given what gabor says and what we kind of what we're discovering now it's like how do we like oh, it, it, clearly dropping kids off at childcare from a young right. age is having a significant impact on their development and and you know the, the future of you know how they experience anxiety in life absolutely right? yeah and there's this process called bridging that I learned from Gordon Newfeld. And Gordon Newfeld and Gabor wrote a book together mm -hmm. called Hold On to Your Kids. Yeah, and the, wow. and the process of bridging is when you drop your kid off, or even when you go to bed at night, you know, you say to your child, Hey, I'm looking forward to waking you up tomorrow. Uh, we'll make your favorite oatmeal. You know, we've got strawberries, mm -hmm. we've got all this sort of stuff. Or when you drop them off at school, hey, I'm looking forward to picking you up here at 3.30. And I think what we'll do is we'll go over to the park and we'll go on the swings. So basically what you're doing is you're creating the next connection in the child's mind all the time. The child is never sort of, okay, have a great day at school. See you later. There's always this bridge to the next connection, which is so wow. important for children. The other wow. thing too, is I don't think you can make like a certain number. You can only have 25 hours or whatever, because basically yeah. some kids are just more sensitive than others. Like if you look yeah. at my brother and me, I'm way more sensitive than he is and always have been. And, yeah. and there is some um, data that shows that sensitivity, a lot of sensitivity is genetic. And it's also, it also has to do with the intrauterine conditions of your own pregnancy, like your own, mm. you know, um, in utero experience. So if you had a mother who is full yeah. of a lot of stress, that actually sensitizes or potentiates your nervous system to be more sensitive. And yeah. so things that would bother one child don't bother another child. So that's why it's hard to sort yeah. of make like a, you know, ch children should only cool. have this many hours or that. And it's a great guideline, you know, but it's just sure. be aware that and and ask any parent, like I can ask you, which of which of your yeah. boys is the most sensitive? Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely uh, our eldest child. Yeah. I, I feel like I've kind of got this concept. I don't, well, it's a theory, but 
after, you know, I work with a lot of men uh, in the, the coaching space, helping them kind of get back into alignment with their families. Right. And or fathers. And the common theme that I see is that most of them have a strong disconnect with their eldest. Like there's been a huge element of rebellion right. taking place. And I see the first child because of our own experience being the practice child, right. like this is your first time being a parent. You're, you're like, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. For our eldest, he was kind of, you know, the one that copped the most dysregulated versions of us. Yeah. And what's fascinating what to what you're saying, Russ, is that he does ask a lot. And so what, like, you know, it's the morning. He's like, what are we doing tomorrow? It's like, he's not even asking about today. Right. Like, dad, what are we doing tomorrow? And I'm like, son, um, well, let's, let's talk about today. And yep. we can talk about it tomorrow as well. And I didn't jerry that until recently. And I'm like, hang on, he's really wanting to, he needs to know what's right. happening. And so my wife and I had discussion. And so we now set up kind of transition-based conversations, which is like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this next. In about an hour, we're going to go off and do that. And now we've got them transitioning so well, whereas before when we were like, right, we're going to this now. Right. They, they're like, whoa. Yeah. Like, and so there was just constant you know, tension and, and just clashing. Totally. And, you know, but they're humans. Like they, you know, like imagine somebody coming into my office now and saying, right, you've got to go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're going to the park now. And I'm like, well, hang on. I'm doing a podcast with Dr. Russ. Like, yeah. So, well, the other thing too, know. I think, you know, you know, the, the other name for sensitivity is uncertainty and intolerance, right? Mm. So if you're, the more sensitive you are, the more intolerant of uncertainty you are. So, and I see that a lot, you know, with my own daughter, you know, when she was younger, she had to know where things were going to go and that kind of thing too. So I think it's really just looking at how much uncertainty is my child facing and can I repair that with them? Can I, can I show them that, yes, you were separated from your brother or us or whatever, how, what went on in you when you felt like you were apart, you know, when you got lost in the store or whatever, you know, and they say, well, and where do you feel that? It's like, well, I felt it in my throat. Some kids can't describe it, but amazingly, a lot of kids can tell you where they feel that, you know, where did you get scared? It's like, well, I felt it in here. It's like, and then you put as your adult, you put your hand over that area where they felt scared and you can even take their other hand and put their hand on top of your hand. Cause basically like that insular cortex, you're training the body as well as the mind that separation is okay. Yeah. It's going to be resolved and you're safe in this, in this feeling. And then you're creating this feeling in them where they can create their own reservoir for their own separations. Cause I mean, just childhood is just full of separations. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this mind body connection that you spoke to earlier, like I know that you're kind of unpacking it now. So you know, the, in the scenario of mum leaving, going to wherever she's got to go, and yeah. there's like, you know, she's gone for an hour, two hours, three hours. So there's separation taking place there. So, you know, primary caregiver's gone. Yeah. And then internally, what you're talking to is a separation of self in that moment, right? I think so. You know, ultimately, I think that's what it comes down to. Of course, the children aren't aware of that, particularly. No. No. But I think mm. that's what creates the alarm. That sense of, that sense of separation is... There's my safe self and there's my unsafe self. And mm -hmm. I think the more trauma a child has without uh, it being repaired, they lean more as they get older into this sense that the world is an unsafe place.
Mm. The more they learn that, you know, I can stay in my safe self. Um, sometimes mom does go away, but she comes back. And this is where bridging comes in. It's like when mm. you say, you know, I'll be back around dinner time or I'll be back when it gets dark, mm. you know, and they like just bridging constantly so that they know in the back of their mind, okay, we're separate now, but we're still together because she's going to be back when it's dark. She's mm. going to be back at dinner time. She's going to be back yeah. when we, you know, go down to the park, when we get the dog, you know, she's mm. going to be back. There's always, and that can't be understated because with children, they don't know, you know, so you really have to make sure that they're aware of the next connection. So they never, they never feel like they're just at loose ends. Like, okay, well, where am I going next? You know, and it can be a bit onerous for parents as well, but it's just, the children are just so much more stable when they know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so for, for the person that's listening now, including myself, like this is, you know, this is great. It's like, well, what if you're the person, you've got the children, but you've also got the anxiety. So, you know, what yeah. what, what, what do we do there? Because, you know, I've got some questions that have come in here, which you know, I love, I'm going to love to hear. Sure. You, to. you know, uh, we I might feed into one of them initially, which is around like, you know, I get anxiety, but then I'm I'm anxious about, I'm, I'm, I've got anxiety about the anxiety. So yeah. I've got this feeling and then it's like, well, and then you, you spoke to a little bit earlier, this kind of cycle. It's like, so what do we do when we're in it? Like how do? Yeah, well, you go into your body. You get out of your head because you're not you're not gonna find it in in your head. It's like looking for peanut butter in the hardware store. It's not there. You're not gonna mm -hmm. find it, right? Even though the hardware store will say, "Hey, we have peanut butter. It's just down aisle five. Go go look for it. It's there." And it's like, no, it's not here. What happens is that we start looking mm -hmm. for things that aren't there. So when you start looking for certainty in a place where there's no certainty. That's what causes real problem with children, you know, so the more certain you can make their existence while at the same time bridging the uncertainty and telling them that uncertainty is good, uncertainty helps you, but you have to make sure at the end of that uncertainty, there's some, they've come back in a connection because yeah. when those, when those ends are loose like that, that's when the, the alarm starts and in sensitive children that can start this snowball effect where they get very, very nervous about even small separations. Yeah. So it's really about, you know, how do you come together after you've been apart? And how do you create that sense in the child mm -hmm. that they are mm -hmm. that your aura is around them, even though mm -hmm. they may not be in your direct presence. Mm -hmm. well, so I give us know. an example of what, what repair, give us an example of what repair sounds like if you're coming back like what kind of dialogue would you potentially have to the child that's you know you've been away from yeah sometimes it's just i mean with young children really young children you can just smother them with affection mm. you know and you'll know that you've given them enough affection when they start pushing you away it's a really interesting dynamic because they want that connection yeah. right so they come up and they're like oh pick me up so you pick them up and you say i just love you so much you're just the best boy or the best girl i just love you so much and you just give them hugs and then eventually they'll get full up and then they'll yeah. start pushing away like they want to get put down again so it's yeah. like that's kind of a you know it, it's kind of an informal way of knowing mm -hmm. that you've yeah. given them enough repair um you know it takes time and it takes energy for sure yeah. without a doubt but it it, it really it pays off in the fact that their nervous system is much more regulated. And as you become a parent and as your stressors become greater, as the kids mm -hmm. become greater, uh, kids become older, um, it helps you as well. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have that sense. There is that sense. Um, if you didn't get enough care as a child, 
when you give that child that that, that child your own attention and your own care, you heal from it as well. Yeah. So it, it's both, you know, giving is receiving yeah. and that kind of thing. So it's really mm -hmm. being aware that you can't give a child too much love, like especially, mm -hmm. especially if they feel separate, especially yeah. just, you know, showing them that they, they're not separate. You know, we do, you know, mom has to go to work. Dad has to go to work. But mm -hmm. you know, when I come home, we're going to play trucks. We're going to do this. Yeah. We're going to do that. You know, yeah. if they know that, it just soothes their nervous system so much. So repair looks something like that, you know, like mm -hmm. I was out longer and acknowledge it with the kid. I mean, depending on how old they are too, it's like, you know what? I said I was going to be home when it, before it got dark and it got dark and I'm sorry about mm -hmm. that, you know, but I'm here with you now. Um, you know, you know, what, what should we do together? Do you want to play some mm -hmm. cards? Do you want to do, and I realize, you know, it's like parents have dinner to make and all that kind of thing, but just taking an extra two or three minutes to, to reassure that child that you're there. Yeah. You have their yeah. full attention that you've connected with them. And it's hard these days because I mean, life is, life is hard, you know, and it's hectic yeah. and it's fast paced, yeah. but, but it's like, it's like an investment, like making that yeah. investment in your child's security um, will pay off so many dividends as you get older. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, we, you know, we see that my wife and I, Jackie, we see that with our boys, you know, obviously because we do some of this work um, for ourselves, but then you know, to apply it into how we parent. One of our biggest breakthroughs with our eldest and, and the other boys now as they get a little bit older is really just acknowledging what they've gone through. I found that, to you know, our Leo, our eldest, when he was about three and a half, you know, he had a new brother already coming in, yeah. pregnant with our third. And so all of a sudden he was this, you know, he was the only one to now yep. having three with a brother and then another one coming and, and his behaviour, you know, he was at three and a bit and his behaviour was just very erratic and, one day just sitting at the breakfast table, I said to him, I said, Lee, I said, Jesus, it must be really hard for you. Yeah. And he's kind it's of great. looking at me. He's three. And I said, it must be really hard for you being a big brother now. You've got another brother that mum's always with. And then there's another one, you know, coming. And I said, it must be really hard and really confusing because you don't know what to do. You've never been a big brother before. Perfect. And, you know, and mummy and daddy are like, you know, we've been, we haven't been able to give you all of our time. Is that really hard for you? And kid you not, even when I say this story now, he broke down. Like he's, yeah. he, he was sitting at the breakfast, like he's three and he yeah. started to break down and then he started nodding his head. Yeah. And, you know, just seeing his body just release. Yeah. And, you know, we, we cried and I was like, wow. And, you know, initially I'm thinking I've got to wait till these five, six, seven to really have those kinds of conversations. But it just, that taught me in the moment that, you know, they're never too young to, to be acknowledged and to validate like his experience and, you know, just, yeah. So we just keep returning back to that every time I'm like, you know, geez, well, that would have been really hard for you. Cause I don't know about where you are, but where we are, it's like if boys hurt themselves and cry, it's usually a, a common story of like, Hey, get up. Boys don't cry. Like, yeah, I think that's worldwide. <laughs> I think yeah. that's yeah, that's just yeah. how boys are raised, you know. Yeah, and you know, with three sons, I'm mindful that you know I don't want them to be soft, and there's that yeah. side of me that is trying to, you know. But I'm finding the more I come in and like, wow, that hurt, and you know, just using some of those things that you shared earlier, just like you know, repairing and just giving them that space. It's like they're coming out of it really quickly, you know. Um, and touch is so important. You know, touch that. is so important for the young ones. You know, I mean, it's important for everybody, but you know, as they get to be like six or seven, it's like, yeah, they don't want to, you know, get get so um, touched by parents so much anymore. 
but touch is so important for young kids. It really is the language of, of the nervous system touch. It's, I mean, through your whole life it is, but uh, especially, especially for kids. So yeah, and I call that commiserating. You know, it must be really hard for you when your brother was born or your sister was born or whatever. And then, yeah. and then it's like, you know, where where do you feel that? And you know, where do you feel that? It's like, oh, I feel. Some sometimes they won't be able to tell you, but a lot of times, it's like, you know, it feels right here. It's like, can can we, you know, asking permission? You know, it's like even though you don't have to because you're a parent, but it it gives them a sense of power and control. So can dad put his hand there? Can daddy put his hand there? It's like, yeah, sure. Well, I, and then you put Leo, you put your hand on top of my hand, and we just. We'll just sit here for a moment, you know, because and just and just sort of share with each other that it's hard to have a baby brother and then another one and just see what comes in. Because touch touch is one of those things that supercharges repair. Yeah, it really does. I love that. Yeah, I could see I could see the power in that. That and so, what would be the term? Is that like kind of co-regulation? What's is that a what's happening in that? Yeah, I, that would be an element of that too. That we're talking to. Yeah, there would be an element of co-regulation there too, yeah. because yeah. you know you are sharing this with them. You are sort of creating this energetic touch in the nervous system mm -hmm. that they can accept. You know, that's safe. You know, mm -hmm. it's like they know you, of course. You know, and that kind of thing. Um, it's safe, and it can it can really sort of that insular cortex can really sort of stand down and say, mm -hmm. okay, well, this actually feels pretty good. So I have this mm -hmm. bad feeling. But then this good feeling has actually come in to kind of, you know, paint over it a little bit or weaken yeah. it a little yeah. bit, you know? So, yeah. so there is this sense that, yeah, I can, things sometimes do hurt, but overall they are, you know, mom and dad can help me fix it. And that's yeah. again, how you build resilience in the nervous system mm. for sure. Mm. Love that. Love that, man. This is gold. Hopefully those that are watching now see some stuff coming through. Mom, my mom is online. Hey mom. <laughs> I love it. Hi mom. I did tell Dr. Russ that uh, she'd probably be on. She's the number one fan. Sure. Um, so I want to unpack a little bit about your book and let everyone know about your book and where they can get it from because um, there's a couple of phrases that I've got in here from, you know, the jabs analogy and, and the background alarm sides of things. One question before we transition into that, you know, we are talking a little bit about addiction and substance abuse earlier. Right. What 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 what's the bridge there so for those that are struggling with you know they can't they want to stop drinking they can't it's they're on substances or they're kind of weekend binging what is that actually doing like why why are they doing it in essence like what are they what how is well, that actually numbing important? most of the time it's numbing you know i have mm -hmm. this little thing i call dna which is dissociation uh numbness and addiction like they all go together Right. It's a way of escaping that feeling in your body that feels terrible, that felt terrible when you were five. It still feels terrible, except when you're older, you start creating this cognitive story around it. And it's really not about the story. It's about the feeling. But because we're so mind based in this society, we start believing that the story is the problem and it's not. It's mm -hmm. the feeling. And yeah. one of my little favorite quotes of my own is that you can't fix a feeling problem with a thinking solution. But that's what we do, especially if we have trauma as a child, is that that was the only place we could go was into our into our heads, into our thinking or into our or dissociation. You know, mm -hmm. that was the only place we had. So it, it became the only safe place in the storm. So now as adults, when we go into any storm, we dissociate as well. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I think addiction does, strangely enough, is that it, it actually creates a sense of connection 
within mm -hmm. yourself because if you take alcohol for the first little while it, it fires up your GABA transmission which relaxes your body um heroin morphine opiates they they relax the system enough to allow sort of this this loving and caring feeling this mm -hmm. warm loving and caring feeling that you probably have been kept at bay because that wasn't you know how you were raised or whatever so I think that's what addiction does is it basically kind of gives us an excuse to love ourselves or at least be connected with ourselves. So yeah. we go through this dissociation, numbness, addiction kind of thing. Now, some drugs are numbing, but if you look at, you know, if you look at opiates like morphine, for example, people that don't have a lot of trauma in childhood don't like the feeling of morphine. Like they, it feels like, well, it feels, it deadens me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. But if yeah. you've had trauma as a child and you get some yeah. morphine, oh my God, it's like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this this has opened up the gate essentially, I believe, to connecting and loving with loving myself, dropping that whole, you know, I'm worthless, I'm judging, abandoning, blaming, shaming myself. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when you take in a, a substance like that, you stop doing those things. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, a, it's like that old story about... <laughs> The guy who, you know, is in the village and he keeps hitting himself in the head with a hammer. And someone comes up and says, why do you keep hitting yourself in the head with a hammer? And he says, because it feels so good when I stop. <laughs> so it's just, it's such a great metaphor for addiction. It really is because, you know, people wouldn't have addictions if they didn't have trauma, you know, for mm. the most part. I mean, there are. And there's the study with rats too, where they put yeah. rats in a cage, and they give them cocaine, and the, if they if they're in an enriched environment, eh, you know, yeah. we don't need yeah. the cocaine. But if they're in a poor environment, they'll use the cocaine until they die. So, you know, human beings are, you know, we're we're like we're animals. You know, we need that connection, and if we don't get it, we'll try and find it in whatever way we can. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was going to bring that up. I think it was that rat park, right, where they. Yeah. Rats in isolation, they had two cups of water. One water was normal, one was laced with cocaine. And in the isolation, you know, area, they were just smashing the cocaine yeah. and ODing. But when they put them in, you know, the amusement park area, yeah. it was like, you know, the occasional rat would come in and, yeah. you know, get a little hit, you know, live 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 life on the wild side. Yeah. But the majority weren't. And 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 that's it. There's an interesting correlation there because when we look at anxiety, when I look at my own experiences around the social anxiety aspect, I was throwing myself into environments to try to combat it, but then had this addictive tendency to try to calm the nervous system. Of course. Just explain. But for when I look at, you know, others that I know that are dealing with anxiety, they tend to go into isolation, into withdrawal. You know, it's it's less about going out and meeting people. It's missing functions. Right. It's, not returning phone calls and so that analogy there of you know the the, the rat park i can see that playing out um it's fascinating yeah mm. um, yeah so it's and it, it's understanding you know if you look at if you look at this sort of you know addiction a numbness dissociation and i, I was asking a friend of mine last night because i was trying to figure out what's the difference between numbness and dissociation and he said dissociation is the action numbness is the feeling and it's like yes because I was, I've been working on that for like a week, and usually I'm pretty good at figuring that stuff out. But, but he just kind of came up with it. I think that's, I think it's very accurate. And I think a lot of us we dissociate from our bodies because our bodies feel painful, and because we didn't get that connection we needed when we were younger, that feeling is is so mm -hmm. abhorrent to us that we will do anything to avoid it. 
including addiction. And I think that's why addictions are so common in people that have had trauma as children. This is, this is so eye opening, you know, like obviously I, I I'm familiar with this work because we worked together at the very beginning and I didn't share that, but you know, you cracked me open in a scenario that I experienced, you know, at the age of like three or four, right. It was still showing up in my life and that, you know, it was a huge weight off my shoulders um, and out of the nervous system. But, you know, when we look at that connection that you're talking to around substances and what it does in the initial phase, which it calms the nervous system down, gets us to this point of almost inner peace. Yeah. Then, you know, more of the substance then creates this, you know, the, the beast, yeah. right? The same thing with pills. Like when you we're taking, you know, anxiety type based pills, yeah. it's kind of, it's a similar, it's, it's a, it's a substance, right? Yeah. Which is doing a similar thing, but yeah. then it's not actually addressing the root cause. Um, and so it's like, no, no wonder it's not really working. Right. It's, yeah. Like I often call like, um, anxiety pills, you know, like, um, Xanax and lorazepam and all that kind of stuff, love substitutes because we won't give the love to ourselves because we have this feeling about ourselves that we're broken or damaged or unworthy or whatever, but yeah. we will, we will accept it if we, if we take a medication. So mm. it's like, can you learn to cut out the middleman and connect with yourself? And this takes time. It's not something that automatically just switches over. Although the psychedelics would like, you know, they, the community would like you to think that all of a sudden, you know, you just do ayahuasca or whatever, and then you come out of this and you have a ton of self-love. And it's just, it doesn't really work that way. Like you have to do the work. There's no real shortcuts. Um, I have seen pretty remarkable um, healings uh, on psychedelics, but almost always after a year or two, people slide back into the same old place if they haven't done the grounding work of connecting yeah. with themselves. So yeah, talk talk to us about the book now. Like yeah, a, sure. a, the anxiety RX. I know that you're speaking earlier about you know where it's potentially going to end up. It's already online. I've I've got it downloaded. And I've listened to the first couple chapters, which has been you know awesome. Yeah, um, talk to us a little bit about the the book and you know what what is it serving? How is it serving others when they when they get it? What are they going to get yeah. out of it? I think it's just giving people a different approach to anxiety. You know, so much of traditional psycho psychology and psychiatry, you know, believes that anxiety is this issue of the mind, right? And then a little analogy that I draw is it's kind of like you're reaching into a mirror trying to change the reflection, you know? So anxiety is really the root of anxiety, I believe, is this old trauma that's still stuck in your body from when you were like three, five, seven, 12 years old. Yeah. And it's just reflected by the mind. You know, the brain has this process called interoception, which is basically the mind is always reading the body internally and externally as well. That's exteroception. But interoception is the one the body, the mind is reading the body. And if there's this old alarm there from, you know, not getting your needs met as a child or, mm -hmm. you know, there was your, your parents yelled and screamed at each other and you're hearing people in the grocery store like yell and scream at each other, it's going to trigger the same mm -hmm. old kind of thing. So it's realizing like, okay, this is just a recapitulation of the abandonment that I felt when I was younger. And it's still stuck in my body, like I said, through that insular cortex and the amygdala and that kind of thing too. Now, if we can get a hold of that feeling and we can go back to that place where we felt that, we have a chance of creating a new a new road out of that place rather than the the highway that's been created of just going into your head and just ruminating on your thoughts over and over and over again. 
So what I do with people is like, like I said earlier, I separate the anxiety of your mind from the, the, the alarm in your body because normally they're locked together. And yeah. what I do is I say, okay, well, let's separate this alarm rather than, rather than going into your mind and, and, and worrying and ruminating. Can you instead go into your body and go, where do I feel this? If I'm worried about this medical test or I'm worried about my relationship breaking up or I'm worried about my parent who's sick. Where do you feel that in your body? And really drill into it too. Like for me, it's solar plexus. Um, some yeah. people it's throat. Some people it's belly. Like where do you feel it? Is it superficial? Yeah. Is it deep? Does it have a temperature? Does it have a color? You know, all this sounds very woo. And as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist, sometimes I want to have a seizure because it just sounds so <laughs> antithetical to how I was trained, right? But it works. Like it's the only thing that for me, like I had anxiety for 35 years until I finally found something that worked. And a lot of it was finding it in my body, acclimatizing to it. And even, even in the body keeps the score, even in Bessel van der Kolk's like seminal work there, he says that we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. We're teaching them how to feel this in their body, which I call alarm. He doesn't use that term, but I call it alarm. Feel their alarm and acclimatize to it and get used to it. And even though it hurts, start acclimatizing to it. So rather than compulsively and reflexively going up into your head and going into the worry chamber, yeah. stay with the pain, like stay with the, and, and allow it to metabolize because it will. The mm -hmm. problem with that is it takes multiple times of going into the alarm. You can't just say, oh, just sit with the feeling and it'll pass. It's like, you got to sit yeah. with the feeling like, literally yeah. hundreds of times. Yeah. Again, you know, it's, it's again. not a one and done. It's not a one and done. And I think that in our society, we believe like, oh, okay, I'll sit with the pain. Okay, I yeah. sit with it now. I've that, been with it for five minutes. Problem, it should be gone now. I, yeah, I had that problem, Russ, when we first started doing this work and you, you and I, Nima, and I, got, I came out of it. I'm like, sweet, trauma's all cleared. I'm good to go. <laughs> and, and I had a rude awakening. And I was like, I was jabbing myself. And I want you to talk to that concept sure. before jabbing in the book. But I was like, man, I've done all this work. Like, I should be good now. Right. And they're like, what? Like, I've done, you know, so many different modalities and like, and it was, yeah, it was just, and it was a rude awakening of, and you know, I remember Nima and saying, dude, you haven't got it yet. Like, right. Cause I was up here like, yep, it's all good. Makes sense. Yep. Uh -huh, yep. Uh -huh, uh -huh. He said, no, 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 no. Like you haven't got it yet. You're not, you're not embodying it. You're still here. Yeah. And I at the time. And that's what Nima was like too. When I first yeah, got a yeah, hold yeah, of Nima, yeah, yeah. he yeah. was the same. Like he was the same. <laughs> he was a big proponent of Martini's work and Martini's yeah. a genius. No doubt, no doubt about that, mm -hmm. but it's a very cognitive perspective on a ultimately feeling issue and yeah. the thing about healing i think from from these old traumas is it is it's kind of like mountain peaks like you just go up and you go down again and you go up and you go down again and people think oh i thought i finished with this and really it's your system kind of testing you like okay we'll go down into the the depths of hell again but you've been you've been here and you got out of it so we're going to yeah. show you that you can get out of it again yeah. but sometimes actually when you heal Things get worse before they get better because that overprotective ego inside of us says, I'm only safe when I'm worrying. Mm. So I have so many people that say, I get worried when I'm not worried. 
right? Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, just this yeah, loop yeah. because they're afraid not to worry because it was familiar to them. Like yeah, it, yeah. it was familiar to you in childhood. So it's yeah. learning that, okay, I can, I can acclimatize to this feeling, even if it feels good, even if it feels bad, I can acclimatize to this feeling without compulsively coupling thoughts to it. Because as soon as you start coupling thoughts to it, you know, you may start off with positive thoughts, but eventually your brain will it'll trick you. It'll and all of a sudden then you're right, right back into that same old, you know, I'm gonna die thing again, or my I'm gonna get divorced again. Like you're before you know it. So the only way really getting out of that or playing that or winning that game is not playing it. You know, it's yeah. like those those carnival games, you know, when you go to the carnival and you yeah. you throw the the little ring over the pop bottle oh, or whatever, yeah. or you try and the only way to win those games is not to play them because they're yeah. rigged against you, right? And it's the same thing with it's the same thing with your worries. The only way to win the worry game is not to play it because as mm. soon as as soon as you go in, you've already lost. Yeah. So what you have to do is is go into your body. This is what I, I started off saying is like go into your body, and even if it feels uncomfortable, like breathe into it, stay with mm. it, like stay mm. with it. And with some people, what I'll do sometimes too is say, what was the very best time of your life? Like, what was the best time of your life, Fabian? Mm. Wow. Um, what, were you, my adolescent years or my adult years? Whatever. Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Like, that was a time in my life where I just felt amazing and I felt great. Well, I've got so many of those moments, but um, wow. Yeah, probably, you know, bungee jumping is one okay. of them. Skydiving was an you know, amazing thrill. Um giving uh being part of the birth of my children so i actually sure. you know, i actually was involved of you know bringing them out into the world that was probably the most surreal experience actually being yeah. the first person to hold hold our children yeah so sometimes what i'll do is like that feeling when you first held leo right like yeah. get into that feeling can you just sort of get into that feeling of like oh my god this is the most amazing feeling in the world i got chills up my spine i feel so good yeah, and then what that. I'll often do is I'll say, okay, now let's go into the time where, you know, you came home and the whole house was, you know, in chaos because of one thing mm -hmm. or another. Mm -hmm. And let's pendulate back and forth between those two feelings. Mm -hmm. Because so often what happens is when we get into our trauma feeling is it's mm -hmm. so hard to get out of it. Because mm -hmm. when, when, we, when it was happening, we actually couldn't get out of it. Most of the time we were children and we couldn't escape. But what I do with that sort of, okay, let's take you to the best, one of the best times of your life is I show you unconsciously, you actually can get out of this. You can mm -hmm. actually go into a place that feels, that felt amazing. And then yeah. we'll go back. Let's go back into that place where the house was in complete chaos and you were, you know, completely anxious and afraid. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, let's go back to another time in your life that was amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm actually giving that, that old trauma that the insular memory of that, that body memory, a little bit of a lobotomy. I'm going in there mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm swishing through it so yeah. that it doesn't create the exact same feeling that locks you in it over and over again. Yeah. So, so it's, it's basically getting into your body, regulating your body, and then mm -hmm. you can go into your head because what yeah. happens, and I'm almost finished, is that what happens is that when you go into survival physiology, when you go into fear and alarm, your kidneys start creating cortisol and epinephrine which mm. fires up your body which also goes into your brain as the form of norepinephrine and it paralyzes your rational mind now mm. there's a good reason for this evolutionarily because when you're being chased by a warring tribe your life's at stake you don't need your rational mind so what yeah. it does is like okay we're going to give you everything is going to go into your emotion and like we said earlier 
we're not living in an environment where we're facing, you know, mortal danger every day, but our brains still act that way. Mm. So it's, it's, it's really important to understand that, that you have a lot more control over how you feel than how you think. Yes. So it's like, use, you know, use some breath techniques, you know, yeah. put your hand over it, like connect with it first. And then once your body's regulated, your prefrontal cortex comes back online and then your rational ability to soothe yourself comes back. But you yeah. can't soothe yourself while you're in survival mode because the part of your brain that would soothe you has been shut off by the survival mode. Yeah. Wow. That's that, that, that process that you just shared has, has been a critical part to my kind of growth you know, before I jump on and do podcasts, whatever it is, it's actually, you know, me doing a few breaths in and checking in because I used to have this issue where I didn't feel worthy of being in the same room of other people that I perceived to be, you know, super successful. Right. A lot of the times sure. I felt like previous mentors, I felt like this little kid still, I'm sitting there in a, in a meeting going, I feel like I'm 17 right now. And I wasn't yep. even listening to anything. Like I don't belong in this room. It was just like, and I was like, what is wrong? And I know a lot of other men that I've worked with say the same thing. They're like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm in meetings and I don't feel like I belong there. And so that that process that you teach, you know, the ability to catch yourself in that moment of like, I'm going into this state of like dropping in and that hand on the chest is like huge. And just a few breaths can, you know, I've seen that just automatically bring yeah. everything down and much easier place to kind of, you know, to, to, to operate from. Um, you know, that's, yeah. Cause I'll often say to people, it's much, it's much more effective to use your body to calm your mind than it is to try and use your mind to calm your body. But that, that, that's counterintuitive because everybody Mm -hmm. thinks, oh, your mind is the most magical thing on the face of the earth. And it's, you know, it's pretty amazing, but if it's paralyzed by anxiety or fear or worry or addiction or whatever, you don't have that rational part of you, but you always have your body. Your body will never lie to you, but your mind constantly lies to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so profound. I love, I love what you said earlier around, you know, the environment that we grew up in, whether there was instability, you know, uncertainty, we tend to recreate that. Totally. You know, in our lives. And it's funny because I kind of said in my life, sometimes like when things are going really well, I'm like, things are going really well right now. How can I fuck this up? Yeah, totally. I got the same thing, buddy. I have the exact same thing. I have the exact same thing. And I'm like, hey, I don't really care yeah. about anyone. Yeah. Like my thing is like, yeah. hey, you can't abuse me because I'm really good at abusing myself. So yeah. like, I, I love this. Because message. that was familiar, you know, and human beings equate familiarity with security. Like one of my other little quotes is, you know, if you were raised by a family who didn't show you how to love properly or or was surrounded by a lot of fear, the word familiar can be broken into two words, family and liar, because your family lies to you about what's safe. And then you'll automatically gravitate. Like I would see in my practice, uh, women who grew up, because I would follow alcoholic families as well mm-hmm. as other families. And mm-hmm. I would see that the women in those families would often pick alcoholic partners, even though they knew it's like, this is this is not good for me, but they were so uh, attracted. They they weren't attracted to partners that weren't unstable, because mm. that was they were so familiar with that. Yes. And it's such a it's such a you know it's it's such a human condition thing to to go back and recreate and reenact your childhood. And on yeah. some level, it could be that you're reenacting it so that you can have a do-over and do it again i would mm-hmm. like to think that's the case rather than mm-hmm. we're just doomed to freaking you know yeah. replicate our our wounds over and over and over again with no with no relief 
<laughs> well, I wrote down here earlier, uh, you know, can anxiety be a gift? And like to what you're speaking to right now, you know, it's like that I see anxiety as an opportunity for us yeah. to go back in and repair and rebuild a connection with ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah. I've heard that before, you know, anxiety is a gift and, and anyone with anxiety will say, you know, screw that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. you know, in the, in the ideal world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it is a gift in this way in that it's pointing you towards your younger wounded self it's pointing yeah. you to the place that you actually have to heal all the cognitive work yeah. you know all the explanations won't make a difference when you find that alarm in your body yeah that is your younger self yeah. like that is the younger version of you yeah. and we tend to keep pushing it away and what's a child going to do who needs love and attention if you keep pushing it away it's going to get mm -hmm. either louder or it's going to shut off completely. So that's basically what shows up is like we either get into this high, you know, fight or flight state or this yeah. dissociated state. And mm. it's basically representing the child that's in us. They're like, I can't, I can't get the love and connection that I need. So I either have to fire your body into orbit or I have to completely dissociate. And, and if yeah. you look at people, and I was like this for many, many years, you know, mm -hmm. and it really affects your relationships because on one level, you so badly want to connect with mm -hmm. your partner or your kids or whatever. And on the other hand, when you're in this state of alarm, you shut off the actual human resonance circuitry that would allow you to be connected. And then you feel yes. terrible. It's like, why can't I connect? Why don't I feel, why don't I feel connected to my child? Why don't I feel connected to my partner? when I'm, when I'm in this yeah. state and it's like, well, evolutionarily you've shut off that, that sort of loving part of you in favor of survival. So yeah. it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to start changing that relationship that you have with your younger self, your body, the ability to actually connect with the feeling, even if that feeling hurts, at least initially. Yeah. I love that. I, and you know, I wrote down, can anxiety be the gift? I'm rethinking that now. And it's like, I think, anxiety is the opportunity mm -hmm. dropping into the feeling and, and and reconnecting becomes the gift once we you know we, we seek that opportunity out right yeah and i think for those that are listening right now this has been like so so powerful and impactful obviously the first place you might be thinking of like you know i want to connect with dr russ how do i work with him the first thing that i would highly recommend is to grab his book you know anxiety rx it's on it's on Audible at the moment, yep. and you've got hard copies as well. Have you? You've got hard yep. copies. Yeah, yeah, it's on Amazon for sure. I have a bunch of people that that have bought it from Australia. Like, there's a awesome. they give me the breakdown every month of, and Australia is one of my big one of my big uh, things. Funnily enough, uh, Melbourne is there's there's three cities in my Instagram that are the the most uh, populated: um, New York, Los Angeles, and Melbourne. Those are the it. three. Those are my three yeah. top Instagram places. So, yeah. so yeah, and I, I have a pro. Yeah, yeah. and I have a pro, uh, another program called uh, MBRX, which is your mind body prescription for permanent anxiety healing, which I price very reasonably. It's like a hundred yeah. US dollars, which is like maybe a million dollars Australian or Canadian, but <laughs> but it's just but <laughs> but it really that. helps. Like it really helps okay. reframe the mm. the traditional narrative that anxiety is a function of your mind because it's not yeah. it's it's a function yeah. of your body it's only reflected yeah. by your mind so the book and the mbrx program are probably yeah. the best things in the world for anxiety yeah. you know awesome. so so we'll that's those, yeah. those links in the um in the awesome. description 
unnerving for people. So to follow you is the anxiety uh, MD. MD yeah. on Instagram. We'll put those links in there as well. Um, do you have a couple more minutes? We do have some yes. questions that have come through as yeah, I've for been sure. promoting this this uh, show. Uh, and um, you know, for those that are watching live, there's still quite a few people watching live right now. By all means, you know, if you've got any questions right now, now is the time. We've got him. We've got the man here. Uh, we've, we've, and we've probably addressed some of these questions, but it'd be nice to kind of, um, you know, to maybe just add another layer to it. So one of the questions that came through, uh, Russ, is I have anxiety for as far as I can remember. And in some cases, it turns into panic attacks where yep. I, I feel like I can't breathe. Um, you know, why does, why does that happen? Because the body just goes into extreme fight or flight. So I have lots of people that feel like completely short of breath to the point where sometimes I will get people to go to the pharmacy and pick themselves up what's called a pulse oximeter. And what a pulse oximeter does is you put it on your finger and it tells you the saturation of your, of your blood oxygen. Mm. So people will say, I'm so short of breath, I'm so short of breath. And then they will look at the oximeter, it's 99%. So they, they know the signal that they're giving themselves that they're short of breath. You know, it, it's, it's a real feeling, but it's not physiologically represented yeah. by any problem with your body. And that's the thing about it's just panic yeah. attacks are those things where your body just snowballs out of control. So you start creating epinephrine in your body, norepinephrine in your brain, cortisol in your body, all these inflammatory and um, hyperactive chemicals. And it's yeah. really important. Like breath is probably the most one of the most important things when you start getting into panic. But the other thing that I do with panic, and this is how I, I sort of heal panic in myself, and there's a, a YouTube video that I've made on my on my um, YouTube channel, and it's basically just to welcome it. It's really like, uh, and I'm going to swear here, but it's like when I feel it coming up, because people with panic attacks know what it feels like. They know mm -hmm. how it builds up, and I just tell myself, I'm going to make this the best fucking panic attack I've ever had. Like I'm just <laughs> because that puts me in control of it, even though I'm not, even though that my body is going to do its own yeah. thing. But mentally, if I think that I'm in control and I'm going to make it worse, it gives yep. me the illusion of power. And one of the things that causes your body to go out of control is you feel that you're completely powerless. And it yeah. usually reflects back to a time that you were completely powerless when you were a child. So okay. that's there's the, I would go look at the the uh, panic attack video on my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. also called the anxiety MD. And, and that's, that's what yeah. I use and it takes practice and it takes a lot of courage to bring on a panic attack because they're horrible yeah. and everyone hates them. But that's the way that I found of actually taking control over it because panic attack usually results because you feel like you're completely out of, out of control and you have no control. So if you start yeah. taking control, then mm. the panic attack has nothing to do but recede. It may take a minute or two, but at least yeah. you're in charge. So, so I love that because it's, the thing that we were saying earlier is you can't think your way out of a feeling problem, yep. but in this instance, you can almost utilize these trigger it. A, trick, yep. a quick thinking of, Hey, we're going to make this the best fucking panic attack. I yep. love that. Yeah. Because then you you have the illusion of control. And one of the things about mm -hmm. panic attacks is that you feel completely helpless and powerless. And I think it, it triggers you back to a place in your childhood where you were also helpless and powerless. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 just stopping that cortisol and adrenaline, you know, in your system that's just firing out of control. Yeah. That's awesome. We've actually just had a live uh, question come through. So I think if I press this, I worry about worrying too much. What can Russ say about feeling safe in my anxious state and not worry about any long-term damage exposure to the long-term stress? Well, to long-term stress can cause. Yeah. Or is this stress bad for the body? 
Well, it depends. It depends on how long it's been going on for and that kind of thing too. Sometimes I think it is a message to connect to your younger self and we won't do anything. I know this is for human beings. We don't do anything until the pain just gets so bad that we can't Mm -hmm. stand it any longer. So, you know, is stress bad for the body? It activates the body. We're designed to be able to sort of handle epinephrine and all that kind of stuff. It's just when it's chronic like that, it makes it harder. So that's when I sort of recommend the book, the MBRX program to start showing you different techniques that you can use to immediately start bringing down that sense of stress. And again, it's usually this feeling of being out of control. And it's usually, again, a reflection of being out of control as a child, just not Mm -hmm. having, being in a helpless, powerless situation. But you're not a child anymore. And that's something we really have to remember is that we're not children anymore. We actually have a lot more agency in our lives now than we did when we were 10 years old. And because the way the amygdala works, the amygdala that mediates a lot of our fear has no sense of time. So when we go into a fearful situation, we get transported back into being a frightened eight-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever. So it's bringing yourself into the present moment. Breathing techniques are great. Uh, I think yeah. the physiological sigh is really good too. Two sniffs in through your nose yeah. and long, slow exhale through your mouth. Like do 10 rounds of that. And that almost always will kind of bring you back into a more regulated state. Yeah. I love that. I love the, the vocal tension on the way out from a breath as well. That yep. Uh, that really I find too. that really calms me down. Um, One of the things I, that I that I add on to that too sometimes with people is that I, I say like breathe out through your teeth. So you breathe in and then yeah. and as you make that hissing sound, imagine a tire deflating. Mm. Like there's just something about that visual that really helps people. Mm. I love, um, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, the stress response that we experience, you know, we're going back in time. One of the analogies or the metaphors that I kind of utilize in that kind of hot, which what takes place is like the movie back to the future. Yeah. It's like, you know, kind of, and so just having that initial thought of like, Oh, I'm going back to the future being that I'm going back into a past time and bringing it into, yeah. you know, current time and into my future. And, you know, like in that, in that one of the movies, he's like able to find out, you know what who won baseball finals and all those kinds of things so it's like you know there's that opportunity gift thing that we we're speaking to earlier so yeah hopefully that was your question miranda um so a couple more here uh well this one's already been answered the the anxious in social settings uh my oh, see this is a good one actually my girlfriend when my girlfriend goes out uh i get really anxious when she goes out without me i get really anxious that she may cheat on me yeah. Especially when I don't hear from her. Yeah. Don't know why that happens. This is a great one because basically it's just an example of your brain making sense of things after the fact. So my guess would be um, that you had episodes when you were a child where you were left alone or you were left by people that cared about you where you felt very off balance. And then what happens is you get you have the same feeling through the insula now that you did back then when you were a child and then your brain has to make sense of that so one of the things the brain will do is it'll say okay well maybe she's cheating on me because that Mm -hmm. makes sense the whole thing kind of fits Mm -hmm. together right and and it's amazing how the brain makes sense of things after the fact and it's not true like it's not even true so uh but you want to believe it because it makes sense it all fits together right okay well she's leaving so if she's having an affair, then this yeah. this alarm makes sense. Mm. But if she's not having an affair, then I'm just faced with the uncertainty and the pain. 
And I would rather make it make sense in my mind rather than just leaving this uncertainty, just being this free floating state that feels terrible. So yeah. that's why the brain actually tries to make sense of it. It's trying to make you feel better. But yeah. again, it's it's making you feel worse because it's like, well, now your girlfriend's cheating on yeah. you. Yeah, that's so that's yeah, that's I know that would be quite a big one because, um, you know, that's something that I kind of used to experience as well in my younger years dating and stuff. You know, there was this constant worry. Yeah. Um, interesting. Another question from the other side, I'm single and I worry about finding someone and will I be able to find someone like because of the anxiety or, or just in general? Yeah, so there's like worrying about worrying. It's a bit similar to Miranda's question there that this just came through, but I'm single and I worry about me not being able to find someone. So there's this constant worry. Um, you know, how do I how do I combat that? Yeah, I think it's it's finding that younger version of you because usually these these patterns, I won't find someone. I, I, I never know what I'm going to do for my job. Uh, mm -hmm. Will I will I be able to reconcile with my parents? Like all these questions that we ask ourselves, it's really coming from inside of you. It's, it's coming from your own sense of disconnection from yourself. The external stuff that you create is just, like I said, your mind is creating something after the fact. It's really about learning how to connect with the younger version of you that was, you know, not seen, not heard, not loved, not not protected, and mm -hmm. and going back and seeing them, hearing them, loving them, and protecting them now. Once you resolve that, the other stuff just falls away. But we mm -hmm. can be fooled into thinking, you know, all sorts of stories based on how we feel because we want to escape that uncertainty. So if you yeah. escape that uncertainty by saying, oh, you know, I'm never going to be able to contact my birth mother, or I'm never going, like it makes sense, but it's not true. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. just a symptom of just your disconnection within yourself. Yeah, wow. I love that. I love that image behind you there, Russ. That's oh, yeah. I, that's your Burning Man. Yeah. Burning, the Burning Man one. Yeah. Yeah. That whole concept of, you know, the disconnect, but then the ultimate thing that we're all, we're all looking for the same thing, right? We're all looking for connection. And yeah. so we'll, we'll either find it with each other or we'll, we'll source it elsewhere, which is where we're seeing this epidemic of addiction and things like that. Yeah. Which, it's, uh, and we heal it, and, and we heal in relationship, and and we we make ourselves worse in relationship too. So, you know, it's you know, pick the right relationship. It's it's very important, very yeah. important. Yeah. Just before we wrap up, I wanted to share something that you mentioned earlier around the the cortisol. You know what happens chemically in our body when we're we're under stress. The thing that I found for myself is that I've been a relatively fit guy. Like I played pretty competitive sports, different types, always played sport. Like every night I was doing something. And um, in the last kind of seven eight years, it's, you know I stopped playing sport. It's been family business. But what I found is that for forever I've always struggled to lose weight. Like I've been fit, but I've just never been able to get rid of this fat around the the, right. uh, the belly. You know, and you know starting to discover this work i've realized that because i've constantly been in a state of alarm it's yeah. you know in, increasing the cortisol levels and it's keeping this kind of layer this protective layer here can be yeah and, it can uh, be. You know, and not it's it may not be the chips and the chocolate that i that I sometimes have at night but it's yeah. um yeah it's it's quite fascinating so um hey this has been awesome i i've learned so much like i thought i already learned quite a bit but today you know you just took it another layer deeper so i'm super grateful to have you on the show, Russ. Uh, obviously, Thanks, we're going to sit in there for, for people to, to connect with you. 
before we go for those that are struggling right now in and around the judgment and the shame that they have like right. i know a lot of people are struggling but the ability to reach out and kind of get help like what's your what's your piece of advice to somebody right now who knows that they've been struggling they're in their head constantly like what would you what would you say to them in this moment if they're listening yeah i guess you know like connect with your breath for sure connect with touch mm -hmm. like even touching your own chest you know even putting your hand over your own heart mm -hmm. trying to sort of connect with that younger version of you that will show up so when you're feeling scared alone lonely jealous whatever it is like where is this in my body like where mm -hmm. am i sensing this and then sort of put your hand over that area and breathe into that area and accept it fully even if it's painful because then you'll start getting different sensations, emotions, memories, you know, from that particular pain. And you actually start getting at the root cause of the problem rather than just looping around in your mind over and over and over again. Like earlier on, she's cheating on me. She's cheating on me. Like you don't get past that. Like you just keep repeating it. So it's like instead of going into your head, like going into your body. The other thing I tell people is just, just tell yourself in this moment, I know I'm freaked out about the future. I know I'm freaked out about what's going to happen to me tomorrow or the next day or the next week. And I know I'm, I'm holding my trauma from the past, but in this moment that I'm in right now, and this works in the middle of the day and the middle of the night, middle of the night, especially, it's just like, am I safe in this moment? And I ask myself that all the time, like, okay, I'm freaked right out now, but am I safe in this moment? Like in this moment that I'm in right now, am I safe? And it's like, well, yeah. And so there's almost like a, there's almost like part of me that wants to argue with that. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, but, but you are safe in this moment, you know? Yeah. But tomorrow it's like, yeah, that's tomorrow. But in this moment right now you're yeah. safe. And it's like, yeah. And that's probably my daughter said that that's the biggest uh, piece of advice that has helped her the most is just mm -hmm. saying, am I safe in this moment? Or you can say it as a, as a, as a statement, I am safe in this I'm moment. Safe, yeah. And uh, cause worry is always this project. Worry is always about the future. It's always a projection of the future. I hope this doesn't happen. I hope that doesn't happen. So when you bring yourself into the present moment and you, you get into the feeling state, you're automatically pulling yourself away from that projected future. And if you can do that over and over again, you start building that muscle of being able to be present and being and stay with. The, and even if it hurts, like here's this thing, like like anxiety isn't just going to go away because you're going into your body, but you are you are actually getting at the root cause of it when you go into your body. And it's going to take a while to acclimatize to it. So if you have and if you can't get out of it, you know, find a therapist, find someone you can explain this to, find someone that you can work together with, like an accountability partner and talk about your alarm, talk about where it is, talk about how you're going to connect with it. And just that's much more effective than just trying to think your way out of it, because that won't work. Yeah. Wise words, my man. So good. Well, the simple thing I think is just read your book. And if you can't okay. join, join the MBRX program. Yeah, sure. That is going to be a, a, a necessary bridge to help you kind of calm that nervous system down, get you back into your body. And I've learned so much, man, and I'm so grateful to, to have yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's great connecting with you again, Fabian. It's always, yeah, I like uh, from the time that we first met, I felt a real kinship with you. So I was really happy to be able to come on and, and share stuff with you. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you to all the, the live listeners and uh, all those comments that have come through. Another episode of the Functionally Addicted Podcast show with our awesome guest, Dr. Russ Kennedy. The Anxiety MD, you can follow him on Instagram. Uh, he's, he's on there. You can get his books. We're going to drop all those links in the description uh, to grab his book and to find out a little bit more about his program. And keep the questions coming in. And uh, 
I'm sure this won't be the last time we connect in this kind of forum, my man. And all the best with the rest of the launch of uh, of the books. And, uh, you know, um, we're going to keep seeing your name uh, get bigger and bigger, man. So I'm so grateful that, uh, that we've got this relationship. Same, man. Anytime. Goodbye, everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode.